Samuel 11, David and Bathsheba. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out into battle, David <clears throat> sent Joab and his servants with him and all of Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from the couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house. And he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba the daughter of Elam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she has been purifying herself from the uncleanliness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived. And she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah the, to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and followed him a present, followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of the Lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? <clears throat> Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will be back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but did not go down to his house. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it to the hand of Uriah. In the letter, he wrote, Send Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him, and he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab. And some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. And he instructed the messenger, When you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then in the king's anger rise, if, then if the king's anger rises and he says to you, Why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Amalabek, the son of Jerusheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall, so that he died at Tebez? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, Your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. The messenger went and came and told David all that Joab sent to him to tell. The messenger said to David, The men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field. 
but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah, the Hittite, is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city, and overthrow it, and encourage him. When the, when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah's, her husband was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. That's the reading from 2 Samuel. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning as sinners. We have disobeyed you in thought, word, and deed. Forgive us as we battle sin every day, God. God, it seems as the world tolerates sin more and more all the time. Forgive the hate that's everywhere lately. Heavenly Father, we can't even turn on the news anymore and not see hatred toward our neighbor, violence, political injustice, and all the other plain social unrest. Father, it's proven time and time again that when we take our eyes off of you, things never end well. But there is hope in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Come into our hearts this morning. With Ezekiel, we pray that you would remove our heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. Help us to find joy in the gospel, to find peace through your unchanging and perfect love for us. Help us to hate our sin as much as you do and to grow in grace as we contemplate what Christ has done to forgive us and free us from sin's death grip. God, would you allow us to see your holiness as we hear the message today, open our eyes, open the eyes of our heart to see the glorious hope that we have in Christ and to see your power at work in our lives of those who believe. Would you cause our hearts to, to burn within us as we celebrate the gospel and message from the Old Testament this morning? That folks, don't, that, folks that don't know you would want that personal relationship with you. God, we just pray that that we would be strengthened today in our walk with you. May the words spoken from Duncan today and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks, Scott. This week, obviously, as you just heard, we come to one of the more familiar and one of the more tragic stories in all of the Old Testament and certainly even the Bible. Second Samuel chapter 11 records this grievous account of the series of horrific sins that are committed by a man after God's own heart, King David. To say that this incident marks a turning point in David's life and his reign would be to put it mildly. I won't say that it's all downhill from here, but it's mostly downhill for here for David. From here on, things are never the same for him, for his family, or for his reign. The entire narrative, if you're listening closely, is permeated with David's sin. Last week, we cited the hypocrisy that he showed because he'd shown such disloyalty to these people after having made such a production of wanting to show great loyalty to Jonathan and, and, and other folks. In this chapter, he explicitly breaks at least four of the Ten Commandments, the Sixth and Seventh Commandment, 
against murder and adultery are obvious. The eighth commandment against lying because all of this is deception. And the tenth commandment against coveting what was not his own. Implicitly, he broke all but three of the rest. He placed the gods of first, his own sexual pleasure, and second, the God of his own reputation ahead of Yahweh. That's the first commandment. He violated the spirit of the fifth commandment by this public scandal which dishonored the memory of his parents. And he also shattered the eighth commandment against stealing because he stole somebody else's wife. Having said that, writing over all of those sins, the author reveals two sins that form the roots of all the rest of David's sinful activities. The first is King David's foolish idleness. King David's foolish idleness. This may not seem like all that big a deal to you, but this actually provides the root from which all the other sins grow. This is the sin that set up David for all the other sins. We see this in verse one where the author introduces the narrative with some ominous words. He says, in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. It's really important when you're reading Hebrew narrative to know that when details like that are put in that wouldn't have to be there, to give the rest of the story, that that's important. It's important that this, these details are in. This is not irrelevant. It's not just unrelated to the rest of the story. It's amazing to read even commentators who believe that this has no bearing on the rest of the story when intuitively we know it does. If this detail were not important, the author could have simply started his narrative by saying, one afternoon David arose from his counts and was walking on his roof. There would have been no need to mention this fact about spring being the time for war if it wasn't important to the rest of the story. The author, however, chooses to weave that detail into the rest of the fabric of the story because it's important. The author marks the importance of David remaining in Jerusalem away from his army because he specifically highlights that this was the time when kings go to war. So the clear implication is that when kings were normally with their troops, King David was not where kings normally were. There's a point there. Beyond that, in verse 2, notice the details that the Holy Spirit-inspired author includes and wants us to see about the way David is living at this time. It happened one late afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from a roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. Again, the Old Testament authors often do not provide explicit editorial comments as to this was right or this was wrong, but what they do do is they, they include details that do teach moral truths, and that's the case here. Notice that this detail about David getting up from his couch in the late afternoon. Again, why would he put that in if it wasn't important? What he's saying is this wasn't just an after-meal siesta, which is common in many places. No, David gets up in the late afternoon, the word literally means near dinner, because he's been in bed much of the day. That's the point. Um, he's not living as a warrior, he's living in leisure. One, af one particular commentator says this detail reveals a sedentary king endowed with a dangerous amount of leisure. Okay, he's not busy in his wartime schedule, he's not making war, he's 
idol, which is a breeding ground for his sin. Both the Old and New Testaments command, command, industry, and hard work. God calls us to be busy with his work, and a big part of a warrior's work is leading God's army. A biblical work ethic is found in all through the scriptures. In the Old Testament, it's in places like Ecclesiastes 9.10. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Read through the Proverbs. You see dozens of those kind of commands. The New Testament version of that is Colossians 3.23, where Paul says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. All those verses describe the way David lived much of his life. They don't match up with the David that we meet here in 2 Samuel 11. The author wants us to see that David is not performing one of the duties of a warrior king, going to war with his troops. John Piper has six strategies to fight and kill sexual lust. And the final one he lists is move into a useful activity away from idleness and other vulnerable behaviors. Frequently, one of the contributing factors in a believer's moral collapse is as simple as the failure to keep themselves occupied in worthwhile endeavors. A popular translation of Proverbs 16:27 is, idle hands are the devil's workshop. There's truth to that. One of the sins that we don't talk much about in the West for reasons I'm not quite sure, maybe it's because we all think we're very busy and the society is very busy, is laziness and idleness. But really, it's so common, it's like the ocean we swim in because, think about it, up until the Industrial Revolution, with very few exceptions, laziness was something that could only be experienced by people who were wealthy or people who were just bums waiting to die. Um, Because most of the culture, up to the Industrial Revolution, didn't have discretionary time. That just didn't exist. The rest of the population, before the existence of a real middle class, before all of our conveniences and labor-saving devices, before fair labor laws and paid vacations, men, women, and often children worked from sunrise until sundown. And there are still some farmers that do that today. Okay? Without electric lights, they went to bed. By contrast, even though we can feel very busy today, many middle and upper middle class Americans today have comparatively a lot of spare time. We spend much of it in our hobbies or our pastimes, often watching one of a dozen media or social media platforms. The smorgasbord of possible leisure activities, from playing video games to watching viral YouTube videos, is more than a person a hundred years ago could possibly have imagined. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Okay? This means that we're to be intentional about how we spend our time, maximizing our productivity for the kingdom. Now, Does this mean that we're not permitted to rest? Well, of course we're permitted to rest. Of all the ancient peoples, only the Jews, only God's chosen people was the nation that had a written Sabbath law. None of the others had that. So there is in God a time to get out of the yoke, and we have to do that. But we have to know that when we're idle, not redeeming the time, as Paul says, that opens up a door for sin. 
that we would otherwise not be tempted to. Internet pornography is rampant for a number of reasons, but one of the reasons is because men and even women are not busy with more redemptive activities. From this story, we see a second sin that is at the root of all of David's other sins, the sin without which none of the other sins would be happening, and that is King David's arrogant abuse of power. We think about this incident as sexual sin, and obviously it is, and it should stand as a warning to all of us, especially men in that area. But the bigger sin that's at the root of all the other sins is not sexual, it's his abuse of power. Think about three reasons why that sin in this chapter is the central sin around which all the others orbit. First reason, every specific sin David commits here is possible only if he is the king. Now, I'm not saying that you have to be a king to commit adultery or to murder. I'm talking about these two specific examples of sins that David commits here. There are two phases in this destructive sin pattern of David's, and they're the same two we see in any contemporary scandal. First is the sin initially, the sin itself, and the second is the attempt at cover-up of the sin. And like today, generally speaking anyway, the cover-up is much more harmful than the sin itself. The specific ways that David sinned, as we'll see, are possible only because he had unique power as the king. A second reason David's root sin is his arrogant abuse of power is because abuse of power alone is evident in all of David's sinful activities. The common denominator that links all of David's sinful activities, idleness, adultery, and murder, are his sinfully abusing his power as the king. Finally, another reason we know that David's root sin here is the abuse of power is because of what Nathan the prophet says to him in chapter 12. We'll get into this next week, but the simple parable that Nathan tells David to force him to see what his sin really is, that parable doesn't even mention sexual sin. If you were to read it apart from this context, you'd never think about sexual sin. It's about a rich man using his wealth and status to cruelly exploit a poor man. The parable describes an abuse of power, and that's the sin that in some ways God is saying you've committed through Nathan. Now let's look at this as we get deeper into the text. First, let's look at David's arrogant abuse of power toward Bathsheba. We know from verse 3 that Bathsheba was the daughter of Eliam. Now, Eliam was, like Uriah, a member of this elite fighting force that they called the 30, okay? So, Eliam is with Uriah in that same group of elite fighters. But he's also, Eliam is, the father of Ahithophel, now, Ahithophel, if you're familiar with these stories at all, is very familiar. Ahithophel was David's top advisor. He was his most wise counselor, okay? So these are not people that David didn't know that he's tying into here with his sin with Bathsheba. He's not only betraying Uriah, but another member of the 30, and he's sinning against um, Ahithophel because Bathsheba is Ahithophel's granddaughter, so there's a lot of connections here that make this even uglier than it might appear at first. The author doesn't tell us anything about Bathsheba's level of complicity. 
You obviously asked that question. Uh, was she bathing uh, on the roof in the hopes that the king might see her? It doesn't give any indication that that's going on here at all. There's nothing in here about any potential feelings that she might have harbored for David. Nothing in that. Uh, we, don't in, we don't know her exact attitude about the betrayal of her husband. We don't know any of that. She's pretty silent. The two words she has in this whole thing is, I'm pregnant. We don't have any idea of any intentionality on Bathsheba's part because the author obviously doesn't think that's important for us to know. The focus of this is the sin of David. The person at fault here is David. This is David's sin. Bathsheba was involved, but her only sin, according to Mosaic law, is from Deuteronomy 22, which says that when you put up no active resistance in the city as a woman being sexually assaulted, if you don't cry out, then you're guilty of adultery. So she didn't cry out for reasons we don't know, but there's nothing else in the story about Bathsheba. The fact that Bathsheba does not actively resist David's advances in no way lessens David's abuse of power, however. On a purely human level, put yourself in Bathsheba's position for a minute. If the most powerful person in the nation, a man with the power of life and death over you and your family, wants to sleep with you, you have no good options. There are no good options for you. David's abuse of power with Bathsheba is in the fact that he as king intentionally places Bathsheba in this terrible position. He knows that most women who are, without warning, placed in a situation like he places Bathsheba in, most of them are going to buckle under the pressure. After David lusts after Bathsheba and he inquires about who she is, we read in verse 4, So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house. One commentator describes the encounter this way. There's no conversation, there's no hint of caring, of affection, of love, only lust. David does not call her by name, does not even speak to her. At the end of the encounter, she is only the woman. The author includes the detail about Bathsheba cleansing herself from her ritual impurity to show us that she's over her menstrual cycle, which means that Uriah the Hittite could not have possibly been the father. Again, there's a reason why those weird details are there. David has to be the father of this child. Of all the men in the kingdom, only David has the kind of authority that would allow him, after seeing a woman with whom he was not well acquainted, to command her to immediately come before and appear him and promptly commit sexual sin with him. If any man other than David in the Israel saw what he saw, he might have coveted her, he might have sinned in his heart, but only the king could have, without fear of penalty, summoned her to sleep with him. We have no record in the Old Testament of David consistently abusing his power, but he more than makes up for it here with Bathsheba. Another arrogant abuse of David's power that profoundly impacts Bathsheba, obviously, is in verse 15 where he orders the murder of her husband. There's no record in the text that Bathsheba was ever let in on this. She may have guessed that Uriah's death was premeditated, given the incredible coincidence that his death occurred at a very advantageous moment for David. We see from later on in the scripture, Bathsheba is a shrewd woman. So my guess is she probably put two and two together, but the author doesn't find it important for us to know whether that's true or not. Whatever the case, the fact is, with one memo to Joab on the front lines of battle, by proxy, David murders her husband, her covenant partner. 
Again, he doesn't consult with her about this. He just does it. Why? Because he could. He's the king. That brings us to the second victim of David's arrogant abuse of power, and that, of course, is David's abuse of power toward Uriah the Hittite. Uriah is an interesting character. Uriah was not a native Jew. He was originally from the Hittite Empire. Because he has a pious Jewish name that means Yahweh is my light, he probably was not a recent transplant into Israel. He had probably been among the Jews for a while, and with his name, he was almost certainly a worshiper of Yahweh. And as we said last week, from chapter 23, we know that Uriah was one of Israel's most skilled warriors. He's in the top class. The author uses Uriah's peerless loyalty to his troops in this narrative as a foil to contrast David's profound disloyalty. Uriah's refusal to sleep with his wife while his army is waging battle, even when David intoxicates him, indicates that Uriah is a person of very high integrity, and yet David uses his royal power to crush this fine man like a bug. In verse 6, he orders Uriah off the battlefield, ostensibly to get a status update from him. Again, strange. Uriah must have smelled a rat of some kind because a teenage boy could have given David a routine progress report from the front. Why take a highly skilled warrior off the front line and turn him into a messenger? Also, the fact that David singles out Uriah alone to be called off the front should have made most people suspicious. David attempts twice, as we know from the story, to manipulate Uriah into sleeping with Bathsheba to cover up impregnating his wife to no avail. David was hoping to use Uriah to give him something that crooked politicians today have become masters at attaining, and that is plausible deniability. Plausible to do something in such a way or to have someone else do it in such a way so that you, at a later date, when it's brought up, you can say, didn't know anything about it. And without the possibility of DNA testing, if Uriah could have been the father, which is what David is hoping will happen here, there would have been no way to prove that he did anything wrong. Plausible deniability. That leads to David's most egregious power abuse, of course, in verses 15 to 17. After he's failed to get Uriah to sleep with his wife, listen to David's instructions to Joab and their subsequent consequences. David ordered Joab, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Well, that was easy enough for David. <clears throat> the fact that a few other innocent warriors also had to give up their lives to cover up David's sin is evidently of little consequence to him. One lesson in all of this is if you're an ancient Near Eastern king and you want someone dead, they usually end up dead. And that helps us see just how miraculous it was for David to survive all of Saul's murderous attempts on his life. This is an, a breathtakingly callous act by David, if for no other reason that those sealed orders on how to kill Uriah were carried back to Joab by Uriah himself. So David sends Uriah back to the battle carrying his own death warrant. This is such perverse efficiency. Well, why did he do that? He did it because he was king. 
And if the king wants to use a highly skilled warrior as a messenger to transport the orders for his own death, he can do that. A third and final example of David's arrogant abuse of power is David's abuse of power toward his nephew and his commander, Joab. Make no mistake, when Joab received these orders about Uriah from David, he felt the same way you and I would have felt by receiving these orders. David was placing Joab in an incredibly hard position. Uriah had been a trusted and very skilled warrior for years under Joab's command. We know that. Joab had, as in Uriah, one of 30 of the most skilled elite class of warriors, and there were tens of thousands warriors total. So this person is at the top of the heap. Uriah was a highly valued military asset. But Joab's commander, King David, wants him dead and orders Joab to have one of his most experienced and lethal warriors terminated. So Joab gives the order that he knew would result in the violent death of one of his best warriors, a totally innocent man, and probably, given their length of service together, probably a friend, certainly a good acquaintance of Joab. When Joab sends his report back to David containing the details of Uriah's death, David responds to Joab through a messenger with this slimy, patronizing platitude in verse 25. Do not let the matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage you. I bet you that message just brought a whole lot of comfort to Joab, huh? Can't you just feel the healing balm massaged into his conscience that was now aching over ordering the execution of an innocent man? This isn't just David bad in spots. This is David comprehensively bad here. He doesn't do anything redemptive at all in this section. All of these arrogant abuses of power, but these abuses of power were uniquely evil because David was committing them. The reason why David's abuse of his kingly authority was uniquely wicked is because the power and authority David abused had been personally granted to him by God to bless his people. That's why you give leaders authority, to bless people. The authority of the king that David so arrogantly abused was God-given to help him better shepherd his chosen people. That means that in his sin, David is trampling all over God here. He's trampling on God's grace in calling him to be king. He's trampling on his grace of protecting him from Saul's numerous attempts on his life. He's trampling on his grace in eliminating all the opposition to the throne that he had done in his sin. David is trampling over all of that grace and was by his sin communicating this. God, I will use your authority, not lovingly to shepherd your flock as you intend, I'm going to use your authority instead to prey on your sheep and to fulfill my selfish, personal desires. This is uniquely wicked. There are so many intensely important truths here that we could go over, but let's just look at this first one, the pervasive nature of God's grace. This is easy to miss, but if you read it carefully, looking for grace, the grace is all over this. God is not mentioned in this story until the very last verse where the author concludes the section with, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. In spite of that, we see David, David receiving grace of God here many ways, and he rejects it all. We see God's grace in him giving, God gave David several of what the apostle Paul calls in 1 Corinthians 10, ways of escape. 
He provides a way of escape. He provided several ways of escape. God provided multiple exit ramps that David could have taken that would have kept him from this downward spiral of sin. The first one we've already mentioned, and that is he could have been up at the front with the rest of his army where he was supposed to be. If he'd been there, this episode never happens. This one sin of omission by David opened the door to incalculable loss to himself, to his family, to his legacy, and to his kingdom. A second means of grace that God gives to David is one that's not explicitly mentioned, but it is absolutely in the background, and that is we know from other places in 2 Samuel that David had at least eight wives and at least ten concubines, which means that it wasn't as if David was starved for feminine companionship to meet his sexual desires. He had a harem. He had a harem of women who he could have been intimate with without any negative consequences. The primary role of a concubine was to be with a king sexually and mother his children. But 18 women who were exclusively devoted to David weren't enough for him. He needed the wife of another man to satisfy him. Another means of grace God had given, uniquely provided to David, is judicial grace. Again, what I mean is you have to know that the king was the chief judge in Israel. Nobody overrode him. He was the Supreme Court in Israel. After David sinned with Bathsheba, he had the unique privilege of being able to confess his sin of adultery with Bathsheba and then pardoning himself. He could have done that. Anyone else guilty of adultery, according to Mosaic law, gets the death sentence. Of all the people in Israel, David was the one person who could have confessed his sin without fear of legal penalty. He could have done that. He chooses to ignore that opportunity and trample on God's grace and instead kill an innocent man. Another means of God's grace we see in the story is the grace of God through Uriah the Hittite. I mean, think about it. When you put yourself in David's place, if David had seen or if he'd been in anything approximating a healthy state of mind, the bracing in-your-face loyalty and integrity of Uriah would have shamed him into better decisions. You ever been in a situation where you were right in the middle of some sin and some virtuous person comes around? That makes you feel even worse, doesn't it? That makes you feel horrible. You think God didn't provide David for this pur- or Uriah for this purpose? One scholar says, David had expected and hoped that Uriah would prove to be like himself. Instead, he proved to be a man of integrity whose first loyalty was to the king's interest rather than to his own interest. I mean, David had to catch that irony. He was one of the smartest people around. This is, this is surely one last way in which God, by using Uriah to shame David, was giving grace to David. There is one final expression of God's grace to David that we can easily miss, and that is his grace in God did not allow David to live indefinitely in unrepentant sin. God did not allow David to live indefinitely in unrepentant sin. He did this in two ways. First of all, the most obvious is when Nathan actually confronts David about his sin. David was not going to be able to sweep this under the carpet. David efficiently executed a cover-up, but he couldn't cover it up from God. There are no no sins without witnesses, even the sins that we commit in our heads. God sees and knows everything, and he graciously reveals this to Nathan the prophet, who then confronts David with his sin. There is no plausible deniability with God, because God knows everything, including the motives of our heart. But God also keeps David from plausible deniability when Uriah refused to sleep with his wife. 
God is in sovereignty. He would not allow this to be that easy for David. If Uriah would have slept with his wife, this would have been much, much easier on David. This made it much harder for David. He has to kill a man. And whenever it's harder for you to sin, that's an expression of God's grace. As terrible as the consequences were that David paid for his sin when he repented it, of it, it would have been far worse for him to never have repented of his sin that he was never confronted about. That would have been far worse. It's not good to die with this kind of sin unrepentant. As we close, we need to always bring in and see the glory of Jesus. And we see the glory of Jesus here, unfortunately for David, in contrasting how David used his power as opposed to his future son, Jesus' use of power. Whereas David used his finite royal power and authority to use these people for his own temporary personal gain, Jesus surrendered his infinite power for the eternal blessing of everybody else. Paul writes in Philippians 2.5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing taking the very form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. In David's story, there's nothing about him making himself nothing. There's nothing about him humbling himself. There's nothing about anything that's humble. He's making much of himself. He's exercising every bit of his authority to get what he wants. Jesus gave away every bit of his authority to give what we need big difference. This should cause us to worship. The Son of God is the ultimate model of kingdom greatness by deciding to surrender his ultimate power in order to give us the power to become sons of God. David's abuse of power led to immeasurable misery. Jesus' surrender of his power led to immeasurable joy. May God give us the grace to walk in his grace over the power of sin and imitate Jesus by walking humbly before him for his glory and our joy. Let's pray. Father, this is a sobering story on so many levels. There's part of us that just hurts because David, in so many ways, was such a good guy, and it's just so disappointing that his story has this huge black mark in it for all eternity. And God, we know in eternity, you're going to make all things new, and it's, it's all going to be seen for what it was. But Father, it just hurts us. And yet, God, it also humbles us because it's frightening to us that a man like David with all the wonderful godly things he did, all these inspired psalms he wrote, the integrity that he shows in so much of his life that someone like David so rapidly could fall so deeply. And Father, there's a clear lesson there for us. Father, help us never, never to become prideful about how virtuous we are or how we would never do one thing or the other. Because one of the clear lessons of David's life for every believer is if it can happen to David, it can happen to any of us. And so God, help us to always live with that understanding. Help us to always have that in the background of our lives. Chase away the pride within us that sometimes can make us feel like we're invincible. 
God, we all have feet of clay. Help us to remember that. And God, help us to walk humbly before you like Jesus did. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.